As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Beyond Atheism podcast with me, Nathan Alexander, and my co-host, Todd Tavares. Moving beyond questions of God's existence... This podcast asks what atheists should be doing next in a godless world. The declining importance of religion is having profound implications across Western societies. To learn more about why this change is happening and what it means, we are joined by Phil Zuckerman. He's a professor of sociology at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, where he founded the first secular studies program. Additionally, he is the author of several books, including What It Means to Be Moral, The Non-Religious, Living the Secular Life, Faith No More, and Society Without God. Phil, welcome to Beyond Atheism. Oh, thank you so much. Glad to, glad to be a guest. Honored. Yeah. I'm glad you found time between writing all these books. <laughs> Yes, I try. To, I'm trying. I'm trying. You bet. Yeah, I got a new one I'm working on with Isabella Castlestrand and Ryan Cragen. That's almost done. So that'll be out hopefully next year. Oh, nice. Yeah, you'll have to come back on next year. But before, yes. but yeah, before you come back, let's start today. Nathan, you have an easy question. Where do you yeah. want to start? Yeah, this is a simple one, a uh, softball question, although it's to some people, maybe it's controversial. Um, is secularization happening? Oh, absolutely. And to anyone who thinks that's controversial, they're either an ideologue or they or something's wrong or they haven't familiarized themselves with the data or all three. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just no question about it. There, there was basically, uh, how can I say this? Okay, how about this? About 100 years ago or so, some early social scientists predicted the imminent end of religion. In, in very simplistic terms, they 
Durkheim threw out a few sentences in his entire corpus. Weber threw out a few sentences in his entire corpus. Marx hardly, you know, a few here and there. Do you know it was it was not a, a coherent, cogent, formulated uh, social social scientific theory. It was just simply ah, religion's on the way out, and and that was sort of taken for granted for a while. Uh, up through the certainly in the fifties, it was taken for granted. Sixties, seventies, and then some people, uh, religious people, Andrew Greeley, who was a priest, uh, Robert Bella, who who I believe was a believer, although I'm not sure about that, started to um, I think appropriately critique that and those initial proclamations as either um, unscientific or with lacking data or whatnot. And then this this blowhard Rodney Stark, who's basically like a Stalinist in sheep's clothing, <laughs> he, 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 no, he just went crazy saying, and he, he presented himself as an empiricist. He presented himself as a data guy. He, he presented himself as a clear thinker. And he said, there's no so, so secularization at all. It's not at all. The world's more religious than ever. And he got a lot of people in, excited. People were like, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. And um, now we have, that was about, he started about 30 years ago. We've got the data. We've got international data. We've got, you know, country by country data. And basically, the, all the major premises of classical secularization theory are, are holding true. When societies become wealthier, more democratic, more egalitarian, more industrialized, uh, when life is better for more people, they have more existential security, all aspects of religion, belief, behavior, and belonging tend to go down. So while that's that's definitely happening, and in our forthcoming book, we present present all the data. Present all the data. So one of the things that we've we've talked about on Beyond Atheism before about secularization was either the sort of coercive types. Oh like yeah, the, the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, or these like historic oddballs, like the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia. Okay. Where they they like that was treated as like it's something special. And that right. was back in, in the 50s, where it was highly secular. Right. But yeah. you're talking about something that's very generalizable. Yeah. What are, what are the, this scene, so this is, is this happening everywhere? And when we talk about secularization, what are we talking about? What are the big changes? Oh, yeah, you got it. Okay, thanks. I love talking about this stuff. Okay, <laughs> what are, so yeah, like with anything, you have to define your terms. What do you mean by religion? What do you mean by secularization? And so on and so forth. So what I'm talking about are the three Bs, belief, behavior, and belonging, because these are operationalizable, they're studyable, they're observable, or at least two of the three Bs are. So belief in supernatural beings or, or gods or goddesses or realms or nether regions or demons or angels, that's belief, religious belief. Belonging, people identifying with a religious tradition. Yes, I am a Catholic. Yes, I'm a Lutheran. Yes, I'm Jewish. Yes, I'm Muslim, blah, blah, blah. And then behavior, the things that people actually do in relation to those beliefs and those identities. So do they attend church? Do they do body modification? Do they baptize? Do they pray? Do they study the Bible? Do they slit their foreheads? Like what, what are they doing? Fasting, feasting. So those are the three levels, belief, behavior, and belonging. And you can measure those. You can ask people about their beliefs, the strength of their beliefs, if they have them or not. You can ask them about their behaviors and how they identify their belonging. So there's no... There is simply no theory of secularization that I'm aware of that says it will happen through the barrel of a gun. In other words, I don't know of any social scientist who's like, yes, if a despotic, corrupt dictatorship takes over a nation and bulldozes churches and blows up mosques and burns Bibles and makes it a capital crime to be religious, religion will die. I, I've never read that. I don't, I don't know that anywhere, right? But that has happened. We have had 
dictatorships, atheistic regimes, horrific human rights violators, genocidal maniacs like Stalin and Pol Pot, uh, and now who have gone in and tried to eradicate religion through the a bayonet and a torture chamber. Um, I don't think it works in the long term. Maybe you'll see, yeah, sure, people will stop going to church because they don't want their kids to get shot. But but once once those regimes go away, you'll see a resurgence of religion. So we see exactly that happening in, in many of the former Soviet Union states, for example. Now, what classical sociological theorists argue is that there are certain independent variables, for lack of a better word, like there are certain things, that if they occur in any society, whether it's Uruguay or South Korea or the Czech Republic, if any of these things happen, you're going to see declines in religion. And these are things like increased education in the population, better life expectancy. You know, when life becomes more secure, people have access to food, shelter. Life is more stable, existentially stable. When there's, a, when there's democracy and people feel a sense of peace in their societies, when there are more women working in the paid labor force, when there is uh, um, um, when there's greater distribution of foods and services so that more people have access to the things they need, health care, food, housing, when those things kick in, you will see religion start to decline. And so it's not just in the Pacific Northwest. First of all, it is throughout Europe, but, but even places like Ireland and Poland that used to be held up as great exceptions. It's happening now in the United States. The United States has secularized more rapidly in the last 30 years than any other industrialized nation. It's happening in South America. It's happening all over Asia. Um, there are exceptions. So places First of all, where life is still very precarious, where there's poverty and crime and warfare and dictators and hell on earth, you're going to still see religion being very strong. And in certain places where there has where religion was oppressed and is now uh, part of, you know, if you can, if, if religion has other work to do, meaning it can help assert nationalism or help assert ethno, you know, an ethnic pride, you will see religion still be strong. Um, places like Israel have seen an uptick in, in, in religiosity because they are in some kind of existential battle with their Arab slash Muslim neighbors. And so nationalism and Zionism is fueled by religious uh, uh, identity. And conversely, uh, you know, so, so, so that's, I don't know. That's my take on secularization in a nutshell. I can I can throw out some statistics if you want, and if you want to ask about any particular societies, I'm happy to address those. But it's very important, like you, to distinguish between organic and coercive. Coercive is that kind of forced, top-down dictatorship attempt to eradicate religion. It's heinous. It's disgusting. It's immoral, and it's deadly. But organic secularization is what you see in Norway, in Uruguay, in in the Czech Republic, in Scotland. It's, it's, it's what you see it, where in, in British Columbia. It's what you see when, you know what, people just stop caring. They're not so threatened, they just stop caring. Yeah, it's not just an outgrowth of what we would think of as economic development. It's particular types of economic development. I think economic development is, is simply one of the factors, but the data, the, the data points to what uh, Norris uh, uh, and Inglehart, they wrote a book called The Sacred and the Secular, and Inglehart's just come out with another one before he died called, I think, The Decline of Religion. I have to double check that. But it's these are empirical, data-rich analyses that say it's not, yeah, no, it's not just wealth coming to a nation. You know, Swaziland's got a lot of wealth. It's just held by the dictator there. The United States has a lot of wealth. It's just held by the 1%. So it's not just basic like, oh, a society gets rich and suddenly religion disappears. However, if that wealth is more even, you know, it doesn't have to be completely evenly distributed. I mean, it doesn't have to be Denmark. 
um, which has you know the best levels of e of equality uh, in terms of a Gini coefficient. But it doesn't have to be that. It's just if 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 that money is is invested in things like healthcare, education, elder care, child care. So if if the infrastructure benefits from that wealth and that economic development, and you see this in places like South Korea. South Korea used to be one of the poorest nations on the on the earth, and in about seventy five years they entered the top twenty most wealth most wealthiest nations and their religiosity has subsequently <laughs> plummeted like you know more than fewer than 50 percent of the population even believes in god anymore there um and again but but again they also have these other things they have you know free health care free education i mean they have other problems too don't get me wrong these places aren't like you know it's not like they're they're all wonderful and oh full of balloons and popsicles but but yeah it's economic development but it's a certain kind of economic development yeah, and Korea also, I mean, to kind of back that point, one of the things, it, instead of a public provision safety net, they still rely heavily on networks. So a lot mm. of uh, churches are used for networking purposes. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of instrumentality in the religion that is there. There's no question that, that the Christianity in South Korea was part of a broader kind of cultural transformation, looking to the West for... Um, 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 kind of success, a certain Western capitalist notion of success. And so you have a lot of successful megachurches in South Korea. Christianity's done really well, but it's still a minority. It's still only about 30% of South Korea. Like if you live in the States, most South Koreans you meet are Christian. But so you get this idea that, oh, everybody's Christian in South Korea. It's only about 30%. I wanted to ask about the future of secularization. Do you think we're going to reach a sort of plateau on, on that? Or do you think religion is just going to continue to decline? I don't. I, I, it's very hard for me to imagine religion disappearing ever. Um, I think it taps into too many deep-rooted psychological needs, bioevolutionary needs, social needs. Um, I, I think it's just too... Our, our brains evolved in a certain way that are just, we're so susceptible to the kinds of rewards that religion provides most people. Um, there's also, it's not just our brains. There's a, there's a social element. There's an identity element. I just think, and I could enumerate on this, but I just think there's so many needs that religion fulfills for so many people. So it's very hard for me to imagine it going away entirely anywhere. I do see it becoming marginalized. I do see it minimalizing. I do see it becoming more fringe. Um, in places like uh, Scandinavia, Czech Republic, China, although China's tough because they still have a bloody dictatorship in place that persecutes religion. Um, in places like, I'm thinking of places like Scotland, um, um, the Netherlands, uh, where you know where religion just becomes a little bit quaint, yeah, right, a little yes. bit a little bit unimportant. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have the social significance. No one is turning to religion for to make great major decisions in society. However, it's it's too tricky. You know, societies and cultures and histories are too unique around the world. Like, you know, the, the you know how J Japanese society developed is so different from how society developed in Bolivia compared to Arkansas. So it, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. Like, there are idiosyncratic cultures, I think, that have a different understanding of religion, different ways it's it's implemented and different ways it's expressed. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all the secularization theory. And then my other caveat is if shit gets really bad, like if the climate crisis continues to get bad and life becomes more and more unstable for more and more people, I don't see religion going anywhere. If anything, 
you know, I see religion increasing. I mean, if, if, if life becomes like, you know, the, the walking dead minus the zombies, but you know, if we're all, then of course people are going to turn to tribalism, ethnocentrism, religion, you know, because life is too terrifying. You have to believe that there's a invisible magic daddy who loves you and is yes. looking out for you. Yes. So, yeah. Now I will say this though, Steve Bruce, he's a sociologist of religion. One of my favorites up in Aberdeen, Scotland, he's sort of the granddaddy of of a lot of us uh, academically, he once said that the end, the end stop of true secularization is not a sort of self-conscious and active atheism, but a benign indifference or an indifference mm-hmm. to religion. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what he meant by, and I saw that when I lived for two years in Scandinavia, no one was anti-religion. If anything, they kind of thought religion was, like I said, quaint. Yeah, right. like, oh, yes. nice. yes. <laughs> and in fact, and they even I remember this is kind of I don't this is not a very nice thing to say, but I'm just gonna say it because uh-huh. it was said, and I don't want to pretend it wasn't said. Mm. I had several people tell me that critiquing religion was like picking on the fat kid in school. <laughs> yeah. They just said, yeah. like, why do that? He doesn't have yeah. any friends anyway. He feels mm. badly about himself. He's a nice kid. Why pick on him? So that the, the point there was they saw religion as as that, as a kind of nobody likes it. He, he doesn't do any harm, but, he, you know, but he's totally has no friends. And so they were, you know, not actively anti-religious. We're here in the United States when religion is so strong politically and so dangerous. We have to ha- we, we have to engage with it in a very activist way, which tells you that religion is still mighty in the United States. But if religion really becomes diluted, marginal, and 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 um, and kind of uh, minimal, I think you're going to just see more indifference to religion. Right. Yeah. No one complains about Zeus anymore. <laughs> he was such a jerk, too. <laughs> There's so much we could complain about, but yeah, oh, no. it's just not a factor in our lives. When that sort of when those beliefs start to go away, how does this affect practices and and behavior? And specifically, I'm thinking about the piece you wrote for Salon in which you wrote that uh, atheists and agnostics, that far end of secular people, are more moral. Yeah. How does, it, how does secularism impact public morals? So, again, I, you kind of have to define what you mean by moral. And I, my, my understanding is moral is an adjective, right? You can, you can describe a person as moral. You can describe a fairy tale as having a moral. Or you can describe, you know, like, usually we use it to, as a descriptor. So all descriptors are context specific, right? If you, if you call someone smart, it's like, well, what does that mean? Like, you know, like a person can be smart if they know how to survive in the Amazon rainforest, or they can be smart yeah, if they right. know how to solve a Rubik's cube. Yes, like right. what, what, you know, yeah. what does beautiful mean? What is, these are all context specific. All adjectives are, even, even tall. What does tall mean? It has to have a context. So to me, moral simply means, you know, intentions or actions that seek to alleviate suffering increase justice, increase fairness, increase equality, and limit unwanted pain and misery. So that's just, that's how I'm using it. Like, you're, you're free to use it a different way. Like, I'm not, I'm not here like, so, so by that standard, you know, decrease unwanted suffering, increase fairness and justice uh, 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 and well-being, I would argue that there's multiple levels here. I would, you know, just an absence of religion does not guarantee morality like we've seen many atheists who can who are increasing suffering either through despotism dictatorship torture uh the recent past president of american atheists a guy right. named David yes. Silverberg yeah. Silverman, Silverman yeah. Yeah. um yeah. is currently championing um you know sedition in the united states i mean he's 
He's championing gun-toting, abortion-denying, gay rights-hating, racist, you know, rebels who seek to overthrow the U.S. government. And he's an atheist. So, you know, he's he's in bed with the most uh, heinous of theists, right, because it aligns with his political views. And he's causing suffering. It's not just that I disagree with him. He, he's actively causing suffering to people, uh, particularly around the issue of climate change, right? By denying climate change, we're causing direct suffering to humans and other sentient beings. I know D- David probably doesn't even care about other sentient beings. But anyway, uh, uh, I, you know, a, a lot of people don't. Right? Okay, so that said, I don't know that for a fact. Maybe he's like Hitler and he's a, 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 a vegetarian. What do I know? Um, so the point is that However, when you look at the data in terms of who identifies how, right now, in much of the world, if you pick topics that relate to morality, like, do you care and understand about climate change, or do you think it's a hoax? Do you want to get vaccinated, or do you think vaccines are an implant of the U.S. government? Are you for sane gun regulations, or do you want everybody to own an AK-47? Do you believe in the death penalty, or do you take a more merciful, humane approach to that? Um, do you believe in corporal punishment of children? Do you believe women have the right to the uh, autonomy over their own reproductive organs? Do you believe that gays and lesbians have a right to marry who they want and who you know who they love? All these issues that I believe relate to. Do you believe in the governmental use of torture? Do you believe in the governmental use of solitary confinement? Uh, you know, do you want to provide universal health care for everyone, regardless of their ability to pay? What you find is that the more self-identified atheists, agnostics, and humanists take the more moral positions on all of these issues here in the United States, also in Europe, um, I'm not as familiar with data elsewhere, than the more religious. And, and again, and the moderately religious, you know, your average moderate religious believer is right there with the secular folks. But, the, but if you compare the ends of these spectrums, you know, the hardcore, self-described, self-aware atheists, agnostics, and humanists versus the Bible thumper, Quran thumper, you know, those folks, there's a, the, the more religious are supporting the more immoral, the more militaristic, they're, the, they're more tribalistic, they're more nationalistic, they're more homophobic, they're more sexist, they're more racist, they're more a denier of climate change, they deny they're anti-maskers maskers and anti-vaxxers. Okay, so there's that level. Then you can also, I'll just end this diatribe here, you can also look at all the democracies on planet Earth. And the reason I say democracies is because dictatorships are a whole other ball of wax. And you can have religious dictatorships, secular dictatorships. So among democracies, right, where people's, where the will of the people is supposedly what's governing the society, the more secular that society is, meaning the greater levels of degrees of church separation between state and the higher the percentage of the people there who do not go to church, do not believe in heaven and hell, do not believe in God, do not call themselves religious, those societies tend to be the safest, most humane, and have the least degrees of unwanted suffering. Places like Scandinavia, places like Japan, compared to the most religious democracies, which have the highest levels of poverty, inequality, low women's rights, low gay rights, high violent crime rates. I mean, just take, just do violent crime rates for, for Pete's sake, just violent crime rates. And they are the lowest among the more secular democracies and highest among the more religious democracies. So, so you can just Take that for what you will. So my argument is, and there's philosophical reasons that I think um, theism is detrimental to a healthy moral orientation. Um, I think it inhibits a healthy moral orientation. I think it's moral outsourcing and so on and so forth. But you don't even need the philosophy. You can just look at the data. Um, where, where is life more humane? Where is there more suffering? Which people support um, policies that will alleviate suffering? What people support policies that will increase suffering? And the correlations are super strong. 
to sum that up, it sounds like the further you get from religion on like a personal scale on this spectrum between mm-hmm. like hardcore religionist mm-hmm. to atheist, the further mm-hmm. you get from religion on that, the more empathetic you become, the more other regarding you become. Like you care about other people, you think about other people. It's part of your worldview, it's part of your morality, it's part of your behavior. But the, the data seems to show get, that. But the closer you get to religion as your worldview, guiding light, That's lodestone, right. That's the more right. selfish, self-regarding. <laughs> uh, yeah, and tribalistic and Tribalistic and, and callous, sadistic. Well, okay. right. sadistic, I, that might be me editorializing. But that's what we're seeing here. If we look at this spectrum. Indifferent. I would say indifferent to the suffering of others. And and remember, these are just correlations. So it's not absolute, right? There are some completely callous and indifferent atheists, and there are some completely compassionate and empathetic, devout religious people. And it's not that religious people don't do a ton of good. They do. They do. They, they help when there's mudslides. They populate food banks. They volunteer. They go to places like Haiti and they help out. Like there are many religious people who are actively trying to alleviate the suffering of others. So it's not just this absolute, like I don't want atheists and agnostics to take this smug position right. like, oh, we're the only ones doing good. Yeah. But on average, that's all it is. All we deal in social sciences is with correlations, averages, patterns, and there's always exceptions. But on average, depending on the issue, yes, the more fundamentalistically religious you are. In other words, you think the Bible is the literal word of God. You think God actively answers prayers. You pay all, you know, pray constantly. You tend to be more indifferent to the sufferings of others, more in-group oriented, less empathetic, less tolerant of others. And the more secular you are and the less likely you are to believe in God, uh, the more the less the more universalistic you are in orientation, the more empathetic and compassionate you are, and the more uh, the less um, individualistic you are in terms of the in-group, out-group. So those are the correlations. Yeah, people can put that in their bong and do what they will with it, but it's the reality. Well, well, where like where exactly do do secular people like get their morality from? I mean, yeah. I guess it's, it's like for religious people, maybe it's a bit more simple in that mm-hmm. their morality is inculcated in in church or Sunday school or whatever. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but what about for secular people? Like, how do they, and how do they sort of transmit that, I guess, sort of, you know, to their kids or whatever? Right. Yeah. So again, when we mean by morality, we mean, you know, that which alleviates suffering, uh, expresses compassion, and empathy, doesn't harm others who don't want it, uh, fights for justice and, 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 and fairness in society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the fact is everybody religious and secular gets their morality in the same way it's just are you self-deluded about it or not the religious are self-deluded they think their morality comes from the bible or from going to church it doesn't it comes from something much deeper than that uh it, it predates the establishment of the written religions um and it goes like this we get our morality from the following areas first of all the kinds of evolved brains we have we have socially evolved brains that allow for us to understand what someone else is experiencing. It allows for us to understand what someone else's emotional state is. So without that socially evolved brain, we wouldn't be who we are today. So all social primates have this. We have it to a very high degree. Some people call it theory of mind, but it's simply the ability to understand when someone else is suffering and what we can do to ease that suffering. And that was functional in our evolution as group pack animals. It allowed 
in our long, long, long primate evolved history, those small groups of between 20 and 80 who did a better job of empathizing with each other and showing compassion, they simply had a better chance of reproducing their DNA in the next generation. Those groups that were full of callous and different people died out, petered out. They didn't reproduce themselves. So we have socially evolved brains that allow for empathy and compassion and altruism. Number two, we get it from the immediate people, often our mother, the immediate caregiver who keeps us alive from zero to two because we develop a relationship with that person and we experience what it means to be cared for. We experience what it feels to have needs met, dire needs like hunger and cold. As we get older, we observe unconsciously how people are behaving around us. It's called socialization. And we internalize the norms and values of those around us unconsciously. We're not even aware we're doing it. And then as we get even older, we start to reflect and make sense of our world through experience. These are the four sources of morality, our, our evolved brains, the immediate caregivers who kept us alive from zero to two, the people, usually our family and friends around us as we lived up to you know zero to 10 or 12, and then our ability to reflect and reason as we grow up and draw conclusions from certain experiences. This is where morality begins and ends. And so secular people get their morality these ways, as do religious people. The only difference is that religious people tell stories and myths and fables and narratives that repeat certain catchphrases or doctrines or tenets. Some are good, some are bad, right? Just like anything in human culture. Some of the stories in religion are wonderful. I mean, I love the story of Cain and Abel. And the story of Cain and Abel is a great moral, which says if a parent favors one child over another, it's going to end in murder. Like, it doesn't go well. And so both Cain and Abel give their heavenly father an offering, and the heavenly father likes one offering and not the other. This breeds resentment, jealousy, envy, and hatred. Hello, it's just basic psychology 101. It's really a good story. Now, um, it's it's told wrong, though. The church is saying, oh, look, this is the first murder, and, and you should care about your brother. So these are just stories, like any story, they're up for interpretation. So sometimes the stories that religions tell are wonderful and ethical and moral. Sometimes the stories religions tell are nonsensical or even counterproductive. Um, so what I would say is religious people are uh, fooling themselves if they think they're getting their morals from the Bible. We know they're not getting their morals from the Bible. The Bible preaches for, for, for slavery. I don't know anybody who's advocating for slavery. Clearly, they're overriding that. They don't want to kill witches. That's right there in the Bible. You know, people people interpret these stories based on their pre-religious or under, I don't know what the word is. Um, the morality supersedes the religious stories and dictates usually, um, usually. And so secular people, the disadvantage is they don't, because they're not being told these things regularly in stories and scriptures, they actually also sometimes forget where their morality comes from. So when you ask the religious people, where do you get your morality? As you said, they can easily say, oh, I get it from the Bible or I get it from church. And often when you ask secular people where they get their morals, they're actually stumped. Yeah, they right. kind of yes. their head. Yes. Like, I never really thought about yes. it. It doesn't mean they don't have them. Yes. It just means yes. that they haven't had to lay them out in some kind of, and think about where it comes from. Because it is complex yeah. how we become moral beings. There's no simple pat answer to that question. Yeah. I guess it does, um, something like this morality, it it is internalized to the point where we don't question it. It's just something Absolutely. we forget. 
right? A- absolutely. I mean, you it you know you you feel disgust and pain when you see a baby about to fall out of its carriage. You feel horrible when you see someone getting punched in the face. Like we have visceral, mm-hmm. most of us, mm-hmm. and if we don't have those things, there's a psychological. <laughs> description for that like if you are totally indifferent to the suffering of others you have a psychological problem like there's something wrong with you and it's often biochemical it's often neurological they can actually see where in the brain there is brain damage for people who are not affected by the suffering of others now that's not to say that you can be socialized to hate you can be socialized to see other humans as inhuman no question about it i mean the big rub is that we evolved as small groups of primates between 20 and 80 people, which meant we developed an in-group favoritism and an out-group suspicion and hostility, which is very easily tapped. So there's no question that people can be sort of not psychopathic and yet still be indifferent to the lynching of someone of another race or the beheading of someone of another religion. So that's clearly common, but I don't think it's the overriding disposition. I think the overriding disposition is most of us feel disgust at the suffering of others. We feel disturbed by the suffering of others, and we don't actively seek to do it. And while there are flare-ups, genocides flare up and tribal hostilities flare up, I see those as flare-ups, not the default position. I think the default position is most people, most of the time, don't want to inflict pain and suffering on others, don't want to experience themselves, and just want to get on and get by. I, w- I wanted to ask about about politics, um, sort of like maybe another level kind of removed from morality. Um, okay. In a previous episode, we kind of talked about this idea of maybe there's some kind of something inherent maybe to atheist politics. And I sort of thought a way to think about it is is the slogan, no gods, no masters, which Ooh, might help yeah. to sort of explain atheist politics. I'm wondering, like, do you think there's any kind of inherent political views to atheism? Ugh, yes and no. Okay, so what I would say is there need not be. In other words, atheism is simply not believing in God. And Ayn Rand was an atheist and Karl Marx was an atheist. And you couldn't have two more diametrically opposed political orientations, right? Where you have uh, Marx on the one hand, you know, and, and, and Ayn Rand on the other. So just at the very, very minimum, atheism is simply, I don't believe in God. Now that doesn't tell me anything about your politics. However, I do agree that there is something about obedience to authority, right? So highly religious people score very high on measures of obedience to authority. So I'll just give you one example. When you ask, social psychologists will ask parents, you know, what traits or characteristics do you most want to cultivate in your children? And they'll give them like a hundred options, you know, love of the outdoors, uh, respect for authority, obedience to those in power, thinking for oneself, honesty, whatever it is, the more religious the parents, in other words, the higher they score on religiosity, the more does obedience to authority go to the top of the list. And the more atheistic the parent, the more secular the parent, the more does think for oneself right, go to the top right. of the list yeah. and obedience to authority goes to the bottom. So this is just, that's just one example of a measure. So I do agree that atheists and agnostics tend to, again, tend is the operative word, tend to prize skeptical thinking, evidence over over anecdote, making up one's own mind, uh, not liking to be part of group think, not liking to go along with the crowd. There's definitely this spirit of individualism that I think is very healthy for democracy and inimicable 
or inimical, sorry, to dictatorships. So I would argue that yes, secular people tend to be um, politically left because they don't want a strong dictatorial state. They want more democracy. They believe in individual rights. They believe uh, in human rights to a greater degree. Now, again, there's always exceptions and things are getting so wacky right now politically where, you know, it used to be that, you know, people like on the left, like anarchists, like Emma Goldman were, were advocating free speech and, uh, and right-wing zealots were stomping out free speech. Today, you have a lot of people on the left who are trying to limit free speech and you have, you know, these right-wing shitheads uh, advocating <laughs> for free speech. Yes. So, yeah. it's, you know, it's getting a little messy now, yeah. but I would say that, but I would say, and again, there's the sort of philosophy or just the sociological reality. The sociological reality is in every society that's democratic, the more secular you are, the more left-leaning and progressive are your politics, and the more religious you are, or the more right-leaning and nationalistic and authoritarian are your politics, with very few exceptions. And Phil, I think from your description of how human morality is built versus how it's instructed in religion, I think that comes across there, mm-hmm. where what you talk about in how our morality is informed in our life, mm-hmm. in our lives, how it's like how we interact with people, who we're around, how they treat one another, what we what we see when people are treated this way. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a very non-hierarchical, almost mm-hmm. anarchistic, mm-hmm. Um, or, or almost apolitical. Whereas when we talk about religious instruction, getting it from the book, having a exactly. pastor interpret it, having exactly. someone tell us what it what it means that's exactly right that's and that's why it's more that's why i call it moral outsourcing if you're letting someone else tell you how to live whether that someone else is a a drill sergeant a pastor a politician or a magical invisible deity you are saying i do not i'm giving up my conscience my ability to are my actions causing harm or aren't they who is benefiting? You know, it's just simply following orders. And we know that following orders is an abdication of moral reasoning, moral agency, and it's not a defense. You know, that's what the Nuremberg trials told us. We said, no, you can't just say I was following orders. That's not a, a, an acceptable excuse anymore. But at the end of the day, religious morality at the end of the day is reduced to I'm just following rules. It is an abdication. It's an amorality. It's a, or worse. And, you know, the thing is, what I thought of what you were talking about is like, a secular person is more likely to say, well, why is this the law? They're not going to say, well, the law is the law. They're going to say, well, why? And, and they're going to say, well, that law is unjust. Or they're going to say, well, well, that law causes harm. So I'm not bound to follow it. Now I may suffer for that. You may throw me in jail. You may, you know, that, and I'm going to have to make that choice. Like, is it worth taking a stand here? Should I, am I not going to go to Vietnam and instead, like David Harris did, the student body president at Stanford, spend a year in jail? Well, we all have to make that choice. Mm. Um, and I can't tell right. anybody to make it, but or at least change you, the law. You, you make it yourself or change the law. You make that choice yourself. You don't just say, well, I'm just following what the rules are. That's a total moral cop out. And I do agree that secular people are more likely to say, well, does this cause harm? Does, what are the consequences of these actions? Who is being harmed? And so that creates a more empathetic and compassionate 
sort of moral orientation, but it's also creates more progressive politics because you stop and you think, well, what are the consequences of this law? Who's being harmed? Who's benefiting? And I definitely think religious people are, I don't think the data shows they're much more likely to say, well, I'm following whatever the law says and I'm obeying the authorities and I'm following whatever the dictator says or whatever the God says. There's not much different. You know, God simply is a cosmic dictator, right? God doesn't yes. say, let's have a conversation. What do you think? Yeah. You know, God says, you know, obey yes. me or else. Or else I'm going to send you to hell. So that's you know that talk about screwing up morality. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Well, it, in one of the ways that we can learn morality is by talking to others. Indeed. And we have uh, some direct questions Great. where we pose moral riddles to people. <laughs> oh, Normally, Lay it on me. It's called "Can a true atheist?" Blah blah blah. We'll okay. change it today for you, Phil, and make it yes. can a true secular person. Okay. <laughs> so this is just rapid fire. Don't think too much. First thing that comes to your head, can a true secular person be afraid of death? Yes. No. no. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm going to say yes, because I think we have a genetic evolved fear of death. So it's hard to override that. But at the end of the day, if you think about it, then no, there's nothing to fear at all. How can you, there's nothing, it, it's impossible. Do you, wherever you are, it's the same where, you, where were you in 1604? Does the thought of you not existing in 1604 cause you terror? Of course not. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I sort of feel like, well, not, I guess the goal is not to get into a tangent on these, but I, <laughs> I sort of feel like. But they're great. They're great. Yeah. That's yeah. The, the real. Uh, but there's something about like the fear of missing out. You know, when you when you die, like what's going to happen? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, that was Christopher Hitchens had this great quote where he said, you know, when you're about to die, it's not that someone's saying, you know, you're at a party and they tap you on the shoulder and says it's time for you to leave. It's that they say it's time for you to leave and the party will yes, continue. Right, exactly. Yes, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, next, next uh, question. This one's a really tough one. Um, can a true secular person use the prayer emoji? Yes. <laughs> and that's because it has such a cultural, such cultural cachet. And, and we don't have a lot of secular analogs to thing, you know, like to things like, like when someone's sick. Um, yeah, we can say like, I'm thinking about you, but it doesn't carry the same weight as I'm praying for you. Um, and when, and when, when you really hope for something, there's something about the prayer emoji that is stronger than the cross your fingers emoji. However, I only use the prayer emoji among secularists because they know where I'm coming from. Yes. I would never use the prayer emoji with someone who didn't know where I was coming from or perhaps could misinterpret it. Mm. Ooh, that's clever. Okay. Can a true secular person have sex outside the bonds of marriage? Of course. Oh, that's easy. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say, you know, no, never. Uh, one time I had this fever that wouldn't go away, you know, mm -hmm. and I was desperate to see, um, a doctor and my doctor like wasn't in that day. So they're like, well, there's another doctor in the practice. And I'm like, yeah, let me see him. And so I went and unbeknownst to me, English was not his first language. And so I went in, I had this fever and he looked at me and he said, have you had sex outside your wife? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, uh, uh, sorry. And he's like, have you had sex? I, I, mean, I don't want to imitate the no, accent. No. That would yeah. sound like you know, but I'm like, have you, and he's like, have you had sex outside your wife? And I was like, do you mean like, did I come like, on a trip or something? like what, what, you know, like, and then I was like, Oh no. Yeah, no, yeah. I didn't. You know, he thought maybe I had like, right, right. But, 
so yes, I think that being, if you're secular, you definitely can have sex outside of the bonds of marriage. Um, you can do it openly and honestly, or you can do it um, furtively and secretively. I would obviously suggest, I, I think secrets are corrosive for healthy relationships. So I think doing it secretly is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can a true secular person take someone else's life? Yes. Fuck yeah. <laughs> okay. I, are you fucking kidding me? If I was in a in the Warsaw ghetto in 1943 and the Nazis started in, I would fucking pop their heads off with any Molotov cocktail. I'd bite through their jugular with my teeth. I, I Anybody that was trying to exterminate me and my family, I would just fucking take out faster than – I mean – Absolutely. I don't, I'm not a pacifist. I believe we all have the right to defend ourselves and our children. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, can a true secular person exploit the environment uh, to help the well being of others? Hmm. Ooh, God. <laughs> I guess. Well, I mean, it's funny because do you mean can or do you mean should? So, obviously, in terms of can, yes, they can. Should they? I guess it depends on how what they're doing to the environment and what kind of suffering they're alleviating so if you were to tell me hey i'm going to chop down this beautiful old growth forest in oregon but in doing so i'm gonna you know end all hunger in the world i'd say like i mean i guess at the end i'm a utilitarian like i'd have to measure the good and the bad and and, and measure the amount of suffering and go from there mm -hmm. all right um these are fun <laughs> This is the last one, uh, unfortunately. Um, can a true secular person tell their kids about Santa Claus? Yes. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is because I think make-believe is a healthy and enjoyable part of being human. We tell stories. We imagine. We like to create imaginary worlds. And I think it's perfectly fine to let children experience that wonder and that magic, especially when it is culturally scripted. So in other words, I think it would be messed up if some parents told their children there was a little green elf named Chibiboff that lived under a rock in their backyard yeah. in all sincerity, right? Yeah. And they just really drove that, that fairy tale home. I think that would be fucked up. Yes. But <laughs> if you're doing something that's, that's part of the culture and that is easily, easily um, um, debunked at the right at the right time. Um, I remember when my son was disabused of that belief. Uh, we were walking around the block with him and his friend Lucas. Lucas, by the way, is a, is a, is a practicing Quaker, interestingly enough. Wow. And they were walking around the block. I don't remember exactly what grade they were in. I have three kids. I stopped paying attention to those kind of things. But he was young enough, you know, to believe in Santa Claus. And, and they just, they, they hashed it out. And Lucas was like, August, my son's name is August. He's like, how could Santa Claus deliver presents to every house on the same night? Think about it. And August is like, yeah, but but my grandparents, and, and Lucas just kept saying, think about it. And, then August <laughs> was, what is, and I'm like, I'm behind him with the dog. And, and August kept saying things. And Lucas just kept saying, think about it. And by the end of the walk, August was like, you're right. So I wow. thought that was a very valuable lesson. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. God, yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, I, yeah. I do feel like there, there's definitely some like analogy with the way people mm, lose their belief in Santa Claus or whatever, and the way they lose their belief in God. Oh, yeah. yeah. And what's weird is like sometimes I meet atheists and secularists in certain circles who say like, "Don't teach your kids these things because you're just yeah, priming them." Right, right. And I think, and and I, it always strikes me as like, "Are you that insecure? Like, you think your kid is gonna like believe in Joseph Smith?" just because I just find that like, 
it almost suggests an insecurity on your part. I'm like, wow, you're, you're that scared that your kids, first of all, you know, who gives a shit if your kid's a good person and they believe in God, yeah. what do you care? Yeah. And second of all, um, and second of all, it just strikes me as like really insecure. Like, come on, man. Don't, and have yeah. you ever met an adult who still believes in <laughs> right. Yeah. right? Like everybody figures it out at some point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it might yeah. just be priming the pump to get them to reject God. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Although there is the elf on the shelf, and that's pretty creepy. Yeah. That's like inviting the Stasi into your house. For some oh man. <laughs> Phil, you're so well measured. It's and oh, so thoughtful you. and clear that oh, I mean, you, you. this those answers just blew oh. my mind. Everything thank was you so fun. much. It's supposed to be tricky. But Thank no, you for this. it's all so clear and well-reasoned. And just like everything else you brought to us today, this has been an absolutely fantastic talk. Oh, um, my pleasure. I, my um, pleasure. Thank you so um, much. Will you let me know when it goes live or whatever? Absolutely. We'd love to. Um, we definitely will. Is there anything else you want to uh, you want to plug? Any books? Do you have a, a book um, out or any articles upcoming that we should be looking for? The only thing I would say is there's a new edition of Society Without God. It's expanded, updated, and revised. So a lot of people like that book, but it came out 10 years ago. So there's a new revised, updated, and expanded version. Otherwise, no, I'm good. Uh, thanks so much. Okay, that was Phil. Uh, that was a lot of fun talking with him. Uh, Todd, what were some of your takeaways? Um, you know, one of the things that came up is he, this sounds like the secularism, religious authority divide, or like conflict, or that tension between these sort of worldviews is, is a lot more sort of powerful, a lot more of its own thing than we kind of expected. At least it, that's what it sounds like to me. Do you know what I mean? Like this, like it, if we apply it to particular historical circumstances, current events that might be happening right now, and we put it through this lens of secular versus religious, it does help to explain things. Mm -hmm. that's, like, that's one well, thing. like, for example? Abortion laws, right? Mm. I don't know if you, you know, in, yeah. in women's rights. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. Time this is being recorded, the great historical irony is that the there was a lot of gnashing of teeth and rending of cloth over the loss of Afghanistan and how, you know, America failed to secure the rights of women in a foreign country. And then at, at the exact same time, Republicans in, in red states are eroding women's rights for pretty much the same reason, right? It's not scientific. It's not, I mean, I don't even know what the argumentation is. I guess the, the morality, but the morality comes from a religious authority. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, like, I guess, I mean, with regard to abortion, I guess the argument is like, they're trying to protect uh, the unborn fetuses, but then, but then like, you always see stuff like in places where, you know, with a really good social safety net and, and things like that, and like good access to birth control and things like that, um, the abortion rate declines a lot. So you would think if, if that was really your goal, um, then you would, work to do those things but but you know uh anti-abortion people um really don't do those things which which leads one to wonder 
or or to uh, to to think that it's really about like sort of controlling their sexuality, like women's sexuality. Uh, you know what's interesting about that what you just said is I don't know if you're talking about Afghanistan or Texas. And <laughs> yes, that, I think, exactly. Right. I, I right. think proves the point, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. not. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. mean, we could get into that, but this idea, if we look at this through a secular versus religious, like it, it, those different ends of the spectrum, it helps explain that, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. There's a lot of meat on those bones. Yeah. 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 And what it's, and what, I, what, what, yeah, please continue. What are some no, takeaways for, for you? I mean, just, I mean, just like the issue about morality and, um, even like the issue of like, you know, do, doing harm or whatever. I mean, I think like, you know, on so many issues, it seems as though secular people are on, you know, what we would say is the more moral moral side of the, the argument. I think an interesting thing is just that is how succinct he was in terms of his discussion of our, the roots of our morality. It was super, super clear that there's sort of a range of kind of evolutionary roots of morality, but then also sort of socialization and so on. Um, so I think that was, yeah, that was really good. Yeah, totally. And I mean, the way he discusses that moral construction is, you know, these sort of the, the network effects as they are, right? How socialization does it. Like, that's a very diffuse form of power, where you learn by seeing what how other people behave. And that, like, there's no central locus for power. And if you look at it on a spectrum and you wonder why these progressive people who want freedom, right, freedom from religion feel this way, it makes total sense, right, that you have a worldview that says this is how we know what's right and wrong. It's how we treat one another. It's how we're taught. It's how we, we, this lived experience that informs us and allows us to create these rules that we impose on ourselves that's that's where morality comes from as opposed to people who say no someone needs to tell us what to do yeah we don't want to be part of just being dictated to yeah some some sky tyrant Mm -hmm. i think so so much of it is is bound up in this question about authority and where yeah like is it is it us who kind of shapes our morality or is it some something above us i mean in in this like imagined hierarchy or something and yeah it's it's uh yeah it's really interesting and one thing that was lacking is i noticed he used correlation a lot yeah that's true right? yes so it's like these things are related to one another we're not sure how the way like murders and ice cream are related they go up in the summer they go down in the winter right <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um there, there might be a different there might be something different actually causing this but what it led to i mean back in the beginning is he talked about like different forms of political development and economic development and if we want and i think if we want to move beyond just atheism we want a secular world. We want freedom from religious authorities, from their dictatorship. What we need to do is advocate and get these particular forms of development. And like having secular studies actually go and like investigate, like what are the things that are related to a secular society is incredibly meaningful and incredibly powerful for us moving forward and creating the world that we want to live in. 
So, I mean, that's, I'm going to have to check out some of his books. This is, it's going to be a great resource. We'll put links in the description below for that. Nathan, anything else you want to? Yeah. And it, it sort of ties in with uh, the bonus segment, which is uh, for, uh, for, for patrons of our Patreon page. Yeah. Just, just that, like this issue about is secularization, you know, is it the product of something else or is it? itself um causing things or it, yeah is it caused or is it is it oh I yeah mean, right but, what but it, i think yeah does it have the agency does it mm-hmm. have causation nathan maybe you should explain how patreon works how uh, how can people get access to these bonus segments go on our patron patreon page and then you can subscribe uh for to get access to the bonus it's uh five dollars uh, a month and then you get access to the bonus stuff and yeah, there's other tiers as well where you get different stuff. So yeah, we definitely and it just gets better and better. Yeah, it was yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so we definitely appreciate appreciate that. And yeah, if you're enjoying the show, uh, anything else coming up, Nathan? Yeah, one one other thing um, I wanted to mention on September fifteenth, which is coming up really soon, there's a virtual book launch for this uh, Cambridge History of Atheism. So it should be cool. Oh, I've got a chapter in that book as well, I should say. Oh, uh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. I'm not going to be speaking at it. Oh, but actually I should say um, Victoria Smolkin, who was on a, a previous episode, she's going to be one of the speakers. So yeah, so uh, we'll put the link there in the description. Um, let's say, oh, big thanks to Red Japan. Uh, complaints, problems, uh, as always, send those to Nate G. Alexander on the Twitch. On Twitter, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think, other than that, just thank you guys for listening. Like and subscribe. Smash the button. Pull the string. Do they kick the dog? Is that how it works? Not recommended. (laughs) Not recommended. Don't kick the dog. No. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.